...of this earlier trend. For the two countries separated by the North Sea changed after 1600 in ways that, together, created a new kind of consumer culture. The exponential rise in stuff went hand in hand with a rise in novelty, variety and availability, and this was connected to a more general openness to the world of goods and its contribution to the individual self, to social order and economic development. What distinguished the basket of goods in the 18th century was the combination of novelty, variety, and the speed of change. Tobacco, tea, and porcelain were new things that spawned new forms of consuming, socializing, and self-representation. Equally important was the jump in variety. The manufacturer Matthew Bolton, who sold tea kettles, buckles, buttons, and toothpick cases, had 1,500 designs on his books. There was, perhaps, no better indicator of the change than the shift in the meaning of the word consumption itself. After centuries in which the body politic had been modelled on the human body, the consumption of goods began to be distinguished from its epistemological cousin, consumption as a wasting disease. Personal excess, of course, continued to attract moral critics, but it was no longer a dangerous social disease. Instead, a chorus of new voices defended man's appetite for more as the impetus of human advancement. Here was a fundamental transformation, overturning centuries of received wisdom. Less is more gave way to more and more. Once regarded as a drain, to be checked and kept under control, consumption was now defended as a source of wealth. In 1776, Adam Smith pronounced it the sole end of all production— The first signs of this change were apparent in the Dutch Republic, which declared its independence from Spain in 1581. The Netherlands pioneered a new type of society and economy that provided a favourable environment for greater consumption. Its distinctive twin features were an integrated market and a mobile, open society. Land was not in the hands of the aristocracy, as in most of Italy and the rest of Europe, but belonged to smallholders. Secure in their tenure, thanks to long leases, they made the most of the rising demand and price for food from a growing urban population by switching from basic wheat and rye to higher-value butter and cheese, meat and garden vegetables. Peasants turned into market-savvy farmers. Grain was profitably imported from eastern Germany and the Baltic. In the towns and cities, money and labour flowed into increasingly specialised and successful industries. Harlem became the centre for fine linen, Delft for ceramics. Leiden, in 1584, produced 27,000 pieces of cloth. Eighty years later, it churned out six times that number, and with a growing share of pure woolens, larkins. If Ming China saw signs of specialisation, the Dutch raised the division of labour to a new art form. Their villages were characterised by a proliferation of skills and trades— of shoemakers, wagon-makers, and horticulturalists, as well as farmers and small traders. In contrast to the wool trade in Flanders, guilds were absent in the new Dutch export trades, which had little interest in having obstacles placed in their path. Even where guilds existed, as in the north of the Netherlands, they were subordinate to urban governments and lacked the independent power to restrict trade and labour they possessed elsewhere on the continent. Instead, In the Netherlands, the textile trade acted as a magnet for workers from Flanders and Liège. The United Provinces were one commercial zone, 
Without the many regional barriers and taxis that required goods to be unloaded and assessed every few miles in the German-speaking lands, more than anywhere else in the world, labour, capital and land were allowed to find their most productive outlet. It was this virtuous mix of flexibility and fluidity that enabled the Dutch to attract and expand trade, and to absorb the pressures that a growing population and seventeenth-century wars were putting on living conditions elsewhere on the continent. The Dutch population doubled between 1500 and 1650, reaching 1.9 million. All this was not enough to trigger an industrial revolution, but, and crucially for our interests, it did manage to convert a growing population to high wages and a growing demand for goods— In turn, rising real wages prompted the search for labour-saving devices such as windmills and the horse-powered butter churn. Thus, a typical dairy farmer at the end of the 16th century was able to buy one...